I sat in a corduroy easy chair, surrounded by walls blanketed in a paisley design. I stared at the photo of my wife, which resided on the top of the television that sat on the floor, four wooden legs holding up this antique cabinet that encased the flickering screen. The dust-covered picture frame which was once golden, now frayed and filthy and tarnished, helped direct my steely gaze to the face in the frame. I felt nothing. I slowly grazed my hand across my forehead to collect the sweat onto my forefinger. Leaning forward in my chair, I let out a painful groan, yet managed to still raise myself up so that I could go out to the kitchen and turn down the heat, that was scorching my slices of bread. I dragged my swollen feet across the ragged rug that lay beneath my feet, my body craving a full night's sleep, an uninterrupted four hours would have pleased me. A small puff of smoke came upwards from the toast, as I turned off the heat. Focusing on the smell, I was both enjoying and being repulsed by it. I then took note of my own smell. Six months worth of dried, sweat-infused t-shirts and flannel jackets, blue dickies construction jeans with bleached-out holes in the knees and a holy back pocket. I felt so alive as I stared at the metal shavings on the tips of my brown leather boots. A newspaper clipping hung ominously, silently and quite lonely on the front of the refrigerator, having only a maid in the form of a crayon drawing of a scarecrow and pumpkin patch, that made up the background. The drawing was drowning in an excessive amount of oranges, purples and black scribbles. It was a messy piece of art, ripped from a children's workbook and now displayed to go unnoticed for months, maybe years. She was a good girl and well-loved. Jamie was the girl from next door, who would come over to talk to me from time to time. Her parents knew that I was living alone in that old house and didn't mind her coming over to ask me questions about my life and listening to my overly dramatic stories, the ones that I had dreamt up over the years from down at the steel mill. Sometimes, I would tell her stories from the 60s, and how I had decided to stay out of the Vietnam War, so I could stick with the whole college thing. War wasn't for me. As far as I could tell you, I come from a family of those who prefer the flight over the fight, in any situation, so why should I break the chain? I told her about how I would go down to the social club on the corner of Sullivan and Terrence Avenue, and have some drinks with my only real friend. I stretched the truth, telling her I had at least four friends. Sometimes, I would notice the young girls who came piling out of the doors of St. Teresa's High School, which was located only two doors down from the bar. I would stop and sit on a bench for a few minutes to watch these girls, while they chased their shadows, running from these shadows and from each other. The bitch-crossing guard would give me a look when she saw me look their way. I never understood why, till I started paying attention to the news reports every night. The television was merely white noise, to help block out my thoughts and assist in helping the roast beef-hungry man, slide down my throat. I dodged a big bullet by staying out of the war. I'm glad I'm not one of those idiots who like to sit back and tell their never-ending war stories. They survived, they should be thanking God for that alone. Most of the storytellers are full of shit anyway, playing it up, the heroics, the stories of bullshit bloodlust as they drooled over their Budweiser. At the same time, they maintain the image of the red-blooded American, Chevy-driving shit-kickers who don't know shit off no one. I have seen and lived in the belly of the beast. In my dreams and nightmares, I have actually seen what those men like to brag about. The pulling of the trigger while staring into a man's face, the face exploding into a burst of pink splatter, flying bits of bacon-like flesh. It is not something a person should brag about. In fact, there is an endless cycle of shrapnel-filled nightmares that visit me often, like a hated bill collector, who keeps me up till the wee hours of the morning, when the sun first begins to rise. There are no screams with killing, no dramatic movie endings to a meaningful life, just a loud crack, then nothingness silence. Then you absorb the death the best way you can, till it becomes nothing but an afterthought. Sometimes, you try and see if you can actually witness a soul leaving the body through the same rifle scope. In my dreams it's as real as the heartbeat in your chest. 
This is but one story that I could never share with little Jamie from next door. I can't tell her about my nephew either, who hung himself two years ago in his basement, who was simply trying to prove a point, by getting back at his parents for kicking him out of the house for dealing drugs. He snuck back into the house to make them hear his voice. That's real horror. I would like to say, life is meaningless and there is never anything to write home about, but to off myself. Suicide would just be too large a stretch for me and I don't think I could do it. Quite frankly, I don't think I'd want to do it. No, life is not always wine and roses, but it has its fleeting moments of bliss that sometimes occur, when I am simply sitting alone on a bench by Saxton Falls. I like to play music at the local pub, down on Wrigley Avenue. There, they have open mic nights every other Wednesday evening. I like to get there early, so that I can sign up to play first. I've played many different instruments from the time I was about seven years old, but over the years, I tossed one instrument to the side, then another, and finally stuck only with a guitar. An acoustic guitar to be precise. I went to university to be a music instructor but never graduated. I got to my third year at Old Faithful Institute of Music and Theory. Old Faithless, as we all like to call it, was run by the Catholic Church. Imagine trying to mask the chords of purple haze while nuns and priests walked past your room. If they only knew half the shit I played, they would have certainly given me a proper whipping. I'd had enough of the Ave Maria crap for the time I was there. Playing music was my release, it was my soul's release unto the world as it was my salvation. On occasion, I would get one or two people who would come up to me after I played, to compliment me. I never did this for notoriety or fame. That's what it's all come down to in in this world anymore. Real music is created by those who have been shit on for years, and still, they push forwards, onward and upwards. If it were my flavor, I would put on a baseball cap sideways and put out one of those boom boom bap, boppity bap bap albums that sell millions. I leave for work at 6.30am, and I punch in at 7 o'clock. There isn't a line at the time clock like there used to be. A lot of guys left, moved away from here. There was a lot of depression cases in this factory. I can't figure out why, as I've always found it such a charming place. Sometimes a rat would scurry over your foot while you were taking a shit on the can. This was certainly nothing to get all sensitive about. You pull up your pants, walk out, and continue your day on the machine floor. At Thompson Mills, we make metal parts for lawnmowers, which are then sent to factories all over the United States. I gotta work aside this bastard named Jimmy B. I'm not sure what the B stands for. Whatever the case, I don't like him. He has a way of pushing my buttons and insisting on doing different tasks the way he wanted, not following regulations. I would sometimes like to go off on a rant telling him that I've been doing this work since he was shitting green, but what's the point? The man isn't going to amount to shit anyway with an attitude like his. I walked out of the factory that day, and as the sunlight went down over the mountain's edge, I saw a kid sitting on a bicycle across the street and a girl seated on his handlebars. It made me think of my son. I wondered where he was. The last I saw him was after he was arrested the last time. I did not and would not bail him out, so I caught a disrespectful verbal barrage from him. Why didn't you front the money to get me out? What kind of father are you? He knows the kind of father I am. One who won't enable him to do his bullshit while living under my roof. There were bags of unknown substances, kitchen utensils, scales and constant visits from young scantily clad girls at 2am it wasn't that behavior that got the best of me, but the fact that we could never talk about his mother. My wife. In fact, I find it hard to speak about her at any time. I come snapping back to reality, focusing again on the teenagers across the street from me. I couldn't hear what they were saying, because of the zipping traffic going by, but I could see their lips move and their hands slightly gesturing to each other. Their body language told me that they were in love. What was love? Was it simply gestures and coy looks shot at one another? 
necking in the back seats of cars under the moonlight, or was it saying I love you, every time you walked out the door? Or before you end a phone call, or before you roll over to go to sleep? I don't think I ever figured out what made something true love. What I wouldn't do to have a son who looked like this boy I saw across the street. The scene was so romantic to me, almost foreign in a sense. Had I ever felt that way about anyone? Sometimes, I'd get the urge to call my son, but when I did, it was always during a moment when I was en route to here or there, never when I was home next to the phone. I won't carry a cell phone, in fact I hate those damn things. On this crisp October evening, I strolled quietly down Sandbury Avenue towards my pub, Kelsey's. It was another bar with the stereotypical Irish-American facade, shamrocks, Celtic lettering and Catholic symbolism. As I walked towards the pub, I usually made a habit of looking up, gently smelling the air as it was such a personal evaluation of what the weather was to be tonight and tomorrow perhaps. It reminded me of that old Indian guy I once worked with at the factory. He was entertaining with his earth god hokey pokey wisdom. He would say, if the ants climb tree and stop at two foot above ground, the how high floodwaters go. I caught the gist of his wacky ramblings. The other guys would just torture him. The poor bastard, I wish he was around so I could buy him a drink for old time's sake. I arrived at Kelsey's and walked under the old, wrinkled mess of a tapestry that displayed a Brendan Bean. It dangled over your head as you entered through what felt like a 500-pound wooden door. Wouldn't doubt if the Fenian bastards tore it off an actual castle from the Emerald Isle, just to add some authenticity to the joint. Every American claims to have Irish blood. Half-castes is what they call guys like me in Ireland. I sat at the bar and for the first time there was no one to my left, or right, to talk shit with. I proceeded to give a wink to Teddy the bartender, as he poured me another harp. I stared into the mirror directly in front of me. My heartbeat began to feel weak as my mind began to slip back into my past. I was thinking of my wife Mora. I remember it felt like a sledgehammer across my face, as I walked through the front door. I called her name and heard nothing. My heartbeat began to race. My forehead began to beat up with sweat as I rushed from room to empty room. I still kept hope alive as I figured maybe she was down in the basement, but my heart was crushed, finding nothing but a small note written on yellow lined paper which had been torn from a 99-cent notebook, in an rushed manner. The note had left very little to the imagination. Wes, I didn't have the heart to tell you. I know that you grew up in Brockton and it's what you love and where you want to die, but I just can't do this anymore. Sammy will be fine and will find his own way. I'm sorry, but it has to be like this. M. I sipped my last from the glass and pulled myself off the stool, wobbling just a bit as I began my forward march towards the door. Cheers Teddy, all the best, huh? Teddy chimed like an old grandfather clock, take her easy Wes, take a few days off, you look like you could use it. I would Ted, but I got bills, you know. Ha ha, I said, as I pushed open that huge casket lid of a door. When I stepped my right foot onto the pavement, I looked both ways and heard nothing but a distant police siren and slow-moving vehicles crawling by me on the avenue. I began my stroll homeward that night, and I remembered closely observing the huge oak trees across the street as I wondered, where is the angel of death? Santa Claus? The Secret Service? Which trees are they hiding behind? The steely rain began to fall onto my cap, and my tired legs were beginning to give out, the cold going straight into my knees and elbows. My hands were chapped and I pulled them back and into my sleeves to keep the rain off of them. With my head down, I pushed onward. I was two blocks from home on at the corner of Jacoby and State Streets, known to be the worst place in town to get lost. I see a young girl approaching from my left side, out of the corner of my eye, the scuffling of her feet making it hard for her to stay silent, if that was her goal. I have to admit that I wasn't sure if this was gonna be a mugging or not, my hands were now in my pockets, 
I wriggled them around into the corners just seeking anything that might be able to be used as a weapon. This girl suddenly slithered from behind me and slowly and gently slid her ragged army jacket-covered hand under my arm. It was a sensation that I hadn't felt in forever. I remember Maura used to do that when we used to go up to Boston during the holidays. We would walk around the commons, cups of seasoned cider in hand. That was a hundred years ago. I continued to walk at a brisk pace, but I wasn't exactly running either. Hi there chief, you looked a bit chilly, and I'm a bit chilly so I thought I'd come say hello. You from around here? Let me guess, you're from Lynn? Lowell? Salem, ha. Huh. Just kidding actually, I don't really care where you're from. I'm just looking for a good man and wondered if you would be him. I liked how she spoke to me. It made me feel younger, and in some way, gave me a sense of false importance. I wouldn't expect anyone to understand. The last time I was approached by a whore, was back in college. In college though, you didn't need a rubber and girls didn't have rings in their faces or tongues. I slowly halted our little stroll to a stop and I turned to her, looking into her bright and beautiful blue-green eyes. She had really thick hair, black as my morning coffee and curly like my mother's. Her lips were full and the cold air made her cheeks just adorable, as they turned a subtle cherry red. A plaid scarf framed her face and she sometimes hid, behind the warm smoke that came out of her winded lungs. No doubt this woman was some fine wool, but I had to let her go. She had to be cut loose from my arm. My name is Sarah. Come on, at least humor me, give me a chance, huh? Don't make me beg. What is it, you got a wife? I abruptly stepped back and away from her, her wolf-like intentions hiding in an angel's appearance. Listen hun, I said, I'm pretty sure I know what you are, but I can't do this. Just, let me go, okay? I gotta go. I pushed my hands back into my pockets, turned to my right and proceeded to stalk away from her. My boots soldiered forward, boof boof back boof up the sidewalk, toward my doorway that I could now see. The sidewalk was a bit flooded and I had to step around the pool of slush so I could jump onto my steps. I found a package of raspberry fig newtons in the cupboard, and poured a glass of unpasteurized apple cider that they sell down at Ellie's farm stand. Everybody is afraid of catching some illness, some disease, if people only knew how unclean their food really was, they would quit eating altogether. Then maybe the country would lose a couple of pounds. I threw myself onto my easy chair, made for men up to 350 pounds. I cuddled as best as I could, struggling to find the remote. With a flick of the switch, the television popped on. There was a special on the television about 1,993's most overweight states in the US you could bet Massachusetts isn't on there, it's those fat motherfuckers down south. I know it. It's all that greasy shit they eat, Kentucky fried this and that and who the hell knows what else. Get some exercise. Damn it all to hell, who watches this shit? Country full of idiots. I was tired and aggravated now, and my isolation would soon open hell's gate to those things that would haunt me. I was home and in my chair, swearing at my television but I knew if I dared turn off the television, my mind would take over, and the demons would come to me by the legion, tempting and torturing me with my own soul's desire and the remains of my broken heart, cutting me to shreds as I would fight to fall asleep. I had taken some Xanax in order to sleep and hopefully prevent me from dreaming. I remember the war too well, even today and the toll it has taken on all of us who live through its years. I'm not talking about this desert storm nonsense going on now, with all the US military trying out their new toys in the sand, all their tanks and helicopters and specialty weapons. I was obsessed with the NOM footage and would watch whatever I could get my hands on back then. My obsession continued into the 70s and 80s. The images left a burning hole in my mind and on my soul. It is like an open wound that nothing could ever begin to heal. I might not have been there, but perhaps my imagination was my worst enemy. 
I have dreamt scenarios of horror that could have only been directly put into my head by God or Satan or whomever. I have seen hell in my dreams and I'm convinced of what I saw as being real and legitimate. I remember I awoke crying for my life and being so happy that I was still alive. I was there in the darkness. I don't remember if it was hot or cold. I felt a sensation of separation that I could compare to nothing that I had ever experienced in my waking life. I screamed out for anyone, anyone and not one would answer me. No mothers or fathers or sisters or lovers. It was complete and utter isolation. I also saw visions of war, torture and beheadings of the innocent, rivers of blood. All of this was enough for me to be convinced that perhaps I had seen more in my personal hell than any of those dipshits ever saw in real war. Your own imagination is your own heaven or hell, and is in fact your own penitentiary. I slowly passed out and the voices on the television began to disappear. My arms and legs went numb and I began to drift into the nothingness. I could hear cars driving by and people chattering, and in this quiet and monotonous soundscape, I focused on the nothing. Boom boom bam. My body lurched like a catapult out of the chair and I fell onto the floor. My head banged off of the coffee table. Motherfucker. I ripped the back of my pants. What was that noise, the door? I looked over towards the wooden door with its small windows and tried to focus on who, or what could have been there at such an hour of the night. I slowly made my way to the door and as I opened it. My son Sean pushed past me, like a bull in a china shop. He stumbled and fell onto the worn rugged floor. I was in shock, as I slowly shut the door and turned to him in amazement and confusion. What the, what? What are you doing? Where have you been? I shouted. Dad, you gotta hide me, please. Don't let him get me dad. He plead with me. I was in a state of shock, as I slouched down onto the couch with my hands falling between my legs and my head slumping, in near defeat. Son, I haven't seen you in forever and just like you've always done, you just, crash in on me whenever the shit hits the fan. You can't do this to me. Sean got up and brushed his jacket and pants off and stood still while crossing his arms in a defensive manner. Yeah, you called it, I did do something wrong. Me and Jimmy Frost boosted a car in Lynn and on the way back here, I guess the pigs got ear of it, sent out like a half a dozen of them to chase us. Sean continued, and while we were running, we clipped this kid on a bike, pretty close to here, he had a kid on the handlebars too. I don't know how they haven't caught us yet. Dad, you gotta hide me, I can't get caught this time, they will definitely lock me up for a while and I can't take that shit, no way. I stopped to ponder my options in this matter and with my hands stuffed hard into my pants pockets, I looked into Sean's eyes like I never had before. I looked at him with a zealous conviction, as a judge. I began to speak very sternly Sean, this is one of the reasons your mother left. You little bastard. You never knew when to quit. Do you think she enjoyed having to go get you at the school when you got in fights, or pick you up at the police station or the hospital for that matter? That girl, fucking, what's her name, Jeannie, goes and aborts a child that you put inside of her. Do you think that was easy for your mother and I? Do ya? I've said enough to you now, and I just can't be part of this little game any longer. In the near distance, I heard the sound of rushing cars, and some squealing of tires as if they might be coming around a corner. At that point I had figured that the cops had put two and two together, and knew that Sean would come home. Sean also heard the cars, and made a mad dash for the basement. I stood like a brick wall in the middle of my living room, frayed pant bottoms touching the floor over my worn boots. I stared straight ahead at the front door, waiting. My arms were crossed in a way that reminded me of the way Sean used to cross his arms as a child, refusing to eat the piece his mother put on his plate. My chin sat high, eyes focused on the door and my feet spread a fair distance apart from each other. Sean came running back up from the basement, probably realizing that there was really nowhere to hide in the entire house. He came up behind me in a frantic state, arms flapping up. 
and down like a child who couldn't get the toy he wanted while in the store. I can't do any more for you Sean. This is the end the line, and you, my son, are at the edge of the cliff. What are you gonna do now, I said in measured and stern speech. My eyes were still fixed on the front door, waiting. I would not turn around to face my son. He swung around to look up at me, and into my eyes. He had a glazed animalistic look in his own eyes, spread wide and frightened. His arms were at his sides and legs slightly bent, as if he were ready to spring once again to another hiding place, that would also prove to be a futile move. Sean, it really doesn't matter anymore who blames who for what happened to your mother, it just doesn't fucking matter, I said to him. I continued to give him a lecture. I spend my own life in a cage, set free, for but a few hours a day, so I may go down to a grinding factory so that I may continue to live under this roof. I have but a few hours on some nights to forget myself, forget your mother, and sometimes forget you while listening to the placating words of my half-empty glass. Dad, they're coming. Help me, do something. Tell them I'm sorry and put my under house arrest or something, I can't do the time, dad. A huge boom came from the front door, followed by this is the police, could you please open the door? We are looking for Sean and we have reason to believe he is in this house. In a calm and obedient manner, I yelled, yes sirs, please, come into my home. The door opened as if it were any other person coming in to say hello. No dramatic crashing or cursing or guns blazing. I respectfully looked at the cop with my hand tucked into my pants pockets, and said matter-of-factly, I believe he ran towards the back door, I think you'll find him out there. The officer quickly sprung past my shoulder and through the house towards where he figured the back door would be. In the backyard, I heard Sean yelling my name. Screaming and cursing out, my name. I knew that they would cuff him and I didn't want to watch. I slowly took a few steps towards my easy chair and lazily fell down into it. A policewoman came into the living room from behind me, with her hand resting on her revolver, and her police hat strapped like a lid to the top of her head. I had always found the way police dress, to be quite amusing in a cartoonish kind of way. I heard her voice say to me, Sir, we are going to be taking your son down to the precinct down on Willoughby Road. If you would like to come and see what bail will be, and pick him up later. I abruptly interrupted, No. I'm no longer concerned with what happens to the boy. You can try to get hold of his mother, maybe you could help him out but I'm not even sure if I know where you could find her nowadays I realized that this policewoman was someone I had gone to high school with, and my mood slightly changed to something giddy. Wow Julia. How you doing? I didn't even bother to look up at ya, and now that I did, well, how you doing? She said hello back to me, but appeared to be quite unmoved by any type of nostalgic notions I might have been harboring in my little brain. Well, like I said Julia, take him away, I don't want anything more to do with him. I've given and given, and never gotten even a shred of respect back from him, nothing, take him. Away. My head now drooped a bit somewhat shameful, as I thought about getting up and maybe grabbing a beer. Julia walked out after what I had said. Even in school, she was a bitch. I once tried to get fresh with her in the front seat of my truck one time, and it must have really burned well into her memories. She looked at me tonight like someone pissed in her Cheerios. Everyone left, every last flashing light and rumbling engine, until it was quiet and home once again. I sat quietly in my easy chair with the television turned off. I stared now at the wall and my eyes moved down to the photo of my wife. I examined for the moment, the happy look on her face, studying the lines and dimples for what could have been early signs of betrayal. She was in hell, living with me and my son. She was in prison. My son, going in and out of a police station, calling me down to fetch him, kept her and myself living in an emotional prison. I lived in my own correctional facility answering to a boss man, pissing when he let me, and going home to sleep when he let me. Now, my son is gone and I don't want to know what happens to him. I did my best to raise him, 
and I don't know what more a man can do. I went to bed that night, and arose early the next morning, skipping coffee and breakfast. I walked down to the bus stop and waited. Behind me was a pay phone and I turned and faced it, grabbing inside my pocket for a few coins. I called the metal plant and told them that my son died and I would need some time off. I hung up the phone and saw the bus coming down the road toward me. I didn't know if I would ever come home. I didn't care about much anymore. The door to the bus screeched and swung open, and a hulking black man with a large grey beard looked down at me and said, where you headed? I answered, where you going? 